You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. Many of you would know the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. She's a well-known Christian author and speaker and an advocate for the disabled. Uh, she's 70 years old now, but when she was uh, 17 years old, she snapped her neck in a diving accident and has been paralysed from the shoulders down and in a wheelchair ever since. Several years after her accident, she published an autobiography entitled Johnny, The Unforgettable Story of a Young Woman's Struggle Against Quadriplegia and Depression. When I was in my teens, I heard about a distant relative who did a similar thing. He was also 17 years old and he dived into the Murray River and snapped his neck in shallow water and he spent the rest of his life in a wheelchair. I nearly did a similar thing 30 odd years ago, being stupid, which would come as no surprise to many of you. I dived backwards into our four foot deep swimming pool and I'm six foot tall, I might add, our four foot deep swimming pool coming down directly onto my head and I can still to this day hear the crunching noises in my neck as the full weight of my body came down and crushed it. Thank God I only ended up in a neck brace for several weeks and I'm left with various strange grinding noises in my neck when I moved my head around. It could have been much worse. Three diving accidents, two of which ended up paralysed and in wheelchair for the rest of their lives. Kids, don't try this at home. Around the same time I did that stupid thing, I met a young man, let's uh, call him Tom, who had been wheelchair bound for most of his life. We developed a pretty good friendship and uh, Tom would come around a couple of times a week for meals and just to hang out and uh, we'd get in some interesting conversations about life with a disability. I don't recall now what his condition was, but it showed up in childhood and he gradually deteriorated over the years. He was still able to live independently at that stage and he, had a, he got around in an Austin 1800 that had been modified with hand controls and an electric roof rack hoist for his wheelchair. Most of us would have little idea what it feels like to be paralysed, but it's the stuff of nightmares for parents when they see their toddler climb up on the kitchen bench or when they get that phone call in the middle of the night to say their son has been in the car accident. The character in our story today in John chapter 5, if you'd like to get your Bibles open to John 5, the character in our story today knows only too well what it means to live with a long-term disability. This man has been paralysed for 38 years. I wonder if he could relate to the subtitle of Johnny's book, A Struggle Against Depression. Let's get into our text at the beginning of John chapter 5, and uh, we'll read right through to verse 16 to set the context. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of individuals, blind, lame, and paralyzed, 
And you may find in your Bible version, the next small part is not there. It might be in a footnote at the bottom. But some manuscripts had at the end of verse 3, waiting for the moving of the water. And for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. Verse 5, one man who was there was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going down, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath and it's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Verse 1, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. This verse, this particular verse is one of the many texts that have been used in previous generations to suggest that the Bible isn't true. For centuries, there was no sign of this pool. This lack of evidence that the pool ever existed was just one more nail in the coffin of the historical accuracy of the Bible, as far as some people were concerned. There was no sign of that pool until, of course, archaeologists unearthed it. They unearthed the pool surrounded by five roofed colonnades. The Apostle John knows what he's talking about. There have been plenty of other attacks on the Bible, on the historical accuracy of the Bible, Bit by bit, they all collapse as more and more of it is shown to be historically true. I have no fear that the Bible will ever be proved to be inaccurate. It's withstood the fiercest attacks on it for thousands of years now, and it will continue to survive and ultimately triumph in God's good time. Moving on, in these, in verse 3, in these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. It's most likely... The passage, the, the couple of verses there, verse, the end of verse 3 and verse 4, have been put in at a later date to uh, explain why all these invalids were lying around the pool and why they believed that someone would be healed if they were the first in. But it makes you wonder, what caused the people to believe that the first one in the pool, after the waters were stirred, would be healed? 
Had it ever actually happened before, I wonder? Had anyone there witnessed one of these healings, I wonder? Or is this the ancient equivalent of a Facebook post or a YouTube video that goes viral even though it contains no truth? As long as the post can gain enough traction, be shared by enough people and liked by plenty more, it becomes gospel truth. I recall Russ Doty once saying that a lie repeated a thousand times becomes truth. Never mind that that lie may be totally false and easily refuted. Never let the facts get in the way of a good story, they say. We get so easily sucked in by the nonsense that does the rounds of the internet and we'll believe it, especially if it reinforces what we want it to believe. You'd think we'd be a bit more discerning and wise, wouldn't you? You'd think Christians of all people would have a bit more sense. Or is that too much to hope for? Sometimes we Christians seem to display less sense than the world around us. But there's so much that we don't know about the background to this story. Wouldn't you love to know more about the background? How are the waters stirred? No one knows for sure. There's a suggestion that it's an underground spring that uh, pumps a bit of extra water in from time to time. Or is it really an angel that does it? Has anyone actually seen this angel? Or is that just another rumour that takes on a life of its own? How often are the waters stirred, I wonder? Is it daily, weekly, monthly? At random, is there a timetable to it? Has anyone actually been healed? Why is it only the first one then that gets healed? What about the second or the third or the 21st? Why aren't they healed? How long has this man been going there? It's a long time, apparently. He's been paralysed for 38 years. How many of those 38 years has he been laying there, hoping to be the first in? How does he get there in the first place? Does a friend drop him off on his way to work and pick him up on the way home in the evenings? Or is he there day and night? Who feeds him? Does he beg? Does he take his own lunch? And how discouraging is it to know that you'll never be the first one in the pool to be healed? Has he given up all hope and resigned himself to his miserable fate? So many questions I'd love to ask this man, but there's zero answers provided for us in the text. Verse 5, one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years, and when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Do you want to be healed? Seems like a strange question. Are you blind, Jesus? Can't you see that I'm disabled? Of course I want to be healed. But the answer to Jesus' question isn't necessarily that obvious. Sometimes we get comfortable with our condition. It might not be perfect, but it's what we know and it's what we're used to. I remember talking to my friend Tom about this all those years ago. His life was never one he would have chosen for himself. There had been plenty of experiences of bullying and rejection, abuse and exploitation. And he'd done some things, some degrading things in his quest for acceptance and love, things that he regretted but couldn't undo. But he'd become comfortable with his life. 
there were some benefits to being disabled that he didn't want to give up. While he certainly wasn't a leech sucking money from the government, he also enjoyed the freedom that a disability pension gave him to go where he wanted and do what he wanted, and also the discounts he was entitled to on his pension. And he didn't mind the fact that because he was in a wheelchair, many people treated him with courtesy and respect. Not everyone to be sure, but most people treated him well. Plus, he got to park in the disabled spot close to the door at the supermarket. Tom freely admitted to me that he didn't want to be healed badly enough to give up those benefits. We lost touch with Tom after we moved to Melbourne, but I heard that he died several years ago. And I do recall him telling me that one of the things he was most looking forward to in heaven was being able to climb a tree. And when I picture Tom today, I imagine him sitting in a tree with a grin from ear to ear. Tom was looking forward to being healed one day, just not yet. So it's not actually a foolish question that Jesus asks this man. Sometimes wonder if Jesus were to ask me that same question, do you want to be healed of your dodgy back? Would I say yes? Or have I become comfortable with it? Even sometimes enjoying the sympathy that comes when my back goes into spasm. And I sometimes wonder when people seek prayer for healing, do they really want to be healed? Or did it just seem like a good idea at the time? Someone's offering prayer, I might as well try it. I ask those questions because at the end of John 4, we heard about the royal official, official who sought a miracle for his little boy to save his life. And he begged Jesus to come and heal his son. He pestered him to come. It wasn't just a passing thought. It wasn't just a good idea at the time. It almost sounds like that man was prepared to drag Jesus down by force to heal his son. Are we that persistent? Are we that serious about wanting to be healed? Are we that determined? Am I that serious and determined? The sick man answered him in verse 7, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going down the steps, another steps down before me. This poor man had no chance of being the first one in when the water is stirred. Whoever drops him off in the morning doesn't hang around for the day to help him. Every time the water stirs, all he can do is lay there uselessly while he watches someone else get their healing. And he's been doing this for a long time. That must be disheartening. To be so near, yet know it is still out of reach. We could hardly blame him for becoming disillusioned, jealous, angry, bitter, assuming that's what he was. Have you ever been that close to your dream, so close you can almost touch it and missed out again? How do you maintain your hope? Maybe you've been to 50 different healing crusades, seeking healing lined up for prayer and received nothing. Maybe you've had 50 prophetic words about meeting the love of your life and still remain single. 
How do you stay sane? How do you stay positive after having your hopes dashed again and again and again? We could hardly blame this man if he's frustrated and angry and cynical. Few of us could remain upbeat in the face of that carrot that's always dangled just out of reach. The first few times your healing doesn't come to pass, you're disappointed. But then you get frustrated and angry. Maybe then you start to bargain with God. If you'll do this for me, Lord, I'll, be in India, I'll go to India as a missionary. And when you still don't get what you hope for, you start to question whether you are the reason why you miss out on the healing. Is it my lack of faith, you ask yourself? Is it my sin? And the gloom sets in. The despair sets in. Maybe your personality begins to change. Maybe you become harder to live with, short-tempered, cynical. Maybe you become a real killjoy that no one wants to be around. Too many people have turned their back on Christianity because of the illusory promise held out by evangelists and faith healers and prophets and miracle workers that do the rounds to the Christian churches and conferences, all the while getting fat off the hopes and the desperation and the misery of people. Was this man like that, I wonder? Was he disillusioned and angry and cynical? Most commentators seem to think he was. He didn't answer Jesus' question with an enthusiastic, yes, I can't wait to be healed, but with a complaint, no one will help me. Most commentators think the reason no one is there to help him is because he's burnt too many bridges and his family are just glad to have him out of the house for a while. Maybe that's an unfair assessment of this man. Maybe all the Bible scholars have judged him harshly. But we'll see later on in this story how he responds to this miraculous healing. And he certainly doesn't cover himself with glory. So Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And that once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the same. Yet again, we see Jesus heal someone with a single word, rise, get up. We see it all through the Gospels. Jesus doesn't need to pray long. Why not? I think it's because Jesus only does what he sees the Father doing. Nothing more, nothing less. Jesus himself says not very Many verses on from here, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. If his father is saying, heal this man, then Jesus heals him. If his father is saying, no, don't heal that one, then Jesus doesn't make any attempt nor any offer to heal. I sometimes wonder if that might explain why I so often pray for people without a result and why so often the healing promises of the evangelist fail to come to pass. Are we all doing what we want or are we seeing what the Father is doing? 
and responding accordingly. If they're acting independently of what the father is doing, if I'm acting independently, then that's not faith. That's presumption. And presumption doesn't please God. Presumption is expecting God to do what I want, not me doing what God wants. Now, I've prayed for plenty of people for healing, and I've received plenty of prayer for the healing of my bad back. And truth is, most times it's been without result. Not every time, to be sure. I have been healed instantly by prayer on a few occasions when my back has been in such severe spasm that I can't move. Although healed might be too big a word, for the healing doesn't seem to last. Remission, maybe, would be a better choice of words. I get immediate relief and I can get back to my normal life, but it's not permanent. At some point in the future, it always goes back into spasm. Now, I know at some point in the future, my back will be totally and permanently healed. One day when my earthly life is over and I dwell forever in the presence of the Lord, then on that day, I'll feel no more pain, no more restrictions. No more limitations, no more spasms. On that day, I think I might climb a tree with my friend Tom and admire the view. Have you ever noticed that temporary healings or partial healings were never a problem for Jesus? When he healed someone, they were properly healed. They were permanently healed. What a difference that is to what I've seen and what I've experienced. And what a difference that is to what usually happens when the celebrities pray for someone. And while I'm on the subject of prayer for healing, I wonder why it is that so many Christians go to schools of ministry to learn how to heal a person. They learn all the right words to say. They learn all the right techniques and all specific prayers to pray for each specific ailment. But have you ever noticed, Jesus never healed a person, people the same way twice. What does that tell you about the techniques that you might learn in the school of ministry? And Jesus never needed a rambling prayer either. He only needed a word. Get up, he says. And at once, immediately, instantly, the man is healed, properly healed, completely healed. Oh, how I wish we could see that sort of healing in the church. Instant, dramatic and permanent results. But the best most of us can manage is a long, drawn-out prayer that I think is offered up more to convince ourselves than it is to convince God. Do you remember in the middle of Jesus' wonderful sermon on the mount, he said, when you pray, don't babble on and on like the pagans who think think that God will hear them better if they talk a lot. Is God hard of hearing so that we need to go on and on for him to get the gist of what we're asking for? Is he stubborn and doesn't want to give us what we want? But if we just wear him down, 
he'll give it to us to shut us up. That may say more about our lack of faith than it does about anything else. Or does God do what he wants to do when he wants to do it and to whomever he wants to do it to? If that's the case, then we should get on board with God and then we'll see results. But of course, we'll only see the results that he has ordained to give. Let's face it, there were more people at this pool than just this man. Jesus could have healed a hundred people all at the same time with just that one word, rise. But he chose not to. I'm convinced it was only because it wasn't in his father's good plan to heal all the others at that time. I can't help but think if we were to spend more time trying to discern discern what God wants to do in a certain situation, we would spend less time babbling mindless prayers or practicing well-rehearsed techniques and we would see greater results. I've got to say I'm pointing the finger firstly at myself. If we truly want to imitate Jesus, especially in the realm of signs and wonders, I think there's a lesson here for us. A lesson about faith or presumption. A lesson about hearing God or doing things our way. At once, this man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. There now comes a real turning point in Jesus' ministry. Up till now, he's annoyed a few important people. He's impressed lots more people who follow him around to see what special treat and trick he has to show them next. Then John drops in this little comment in verse 9 to let us know that Jesus healed this man on the Sabbath. In the collective minds of the Jews, now the Jews is John's code word for the Pharisees and the scribes, in the collective minds of the Jews, that was an unforgivable sin. According to them, in healing this man, Jesus worked on the Sabbath. I reckon Jesus deliberately chose to do it on the Sabbath. He could have healed this man any day of the week. After all, the man had been lying by the pool for a long time. Another day wouldn't make any difference. I said last week that Jesus is never beholden to cultural or ethnic norms. If his father said to do it, he would do it. And if the Jews didn't like it, in the immortal words of Salty, they could sit on attack. So Jesus, the troublemaker, here begins to raise the stakes. From this point on, the Jews begin to take seriously to persecute him and to plot his death. We'll have to come back to that in a future message because we're running out of time. At heart, though, even those of us who are in peak physical condition are crippled. We're crippled in our soul. We're broken in our spirit. That's the message that John wants us to understand here. This man in some way represents all of us. We are all broken by sin. 
the sin that was brought about initially by Adam way back in the Garden of Eden. We're all crushed by the sin of the world around us and the sin directed towards us. And by the sin that we live with and even delight in every day of our lives. Consciously, we may not recognise it, but subconsciously, that knowledge is always there with us. It's why we're never really satisfied with our lot in life. It's why we always want something more. More money, more respect, more knowledge. It's why we turn to horoscopes or holy men or the occult or religion. Something's missing. Something's not right. And we're driven to find it. And so we're all laying by a pool, hoping something or someone can rescue us. And we will lay by that pool for eternity and never receive the healing we so desperately need. But Jesus comes to us today with that same question. Do you want to be healed? His offer is genuine. His offer is for the broken. And the first step in your healing is to recognise that you are broken. You're not able to fix yourself. If you could, you would have done it already. Jesus reminds us, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick have come not to call the righteous, but sinners. So he asks you that question today. Do you want to be healed? If your answer is yes, I'm broken, I can't heal myself, then come to him in your brokenness. Turn to him in faith. Trust him to rescue you, to cleanse you from your sin. And you'll get up from your bed a new person. You'll begin to walk in the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you've already heard and responded to Jesus' call to be healed, be grateful. For he has done something for you that you could never do for yourself in a million lifetimes. But there's also a warning for you in the rest of this story. We haven't yet got there, but the question for us later on will be, what have you done with your healing? What have you done with your salvation? Have you recognised the miraculous nature of your rescue from sin and eternal death? Are you walking in a manner worthy of him who gave his own life so that you could gain yours. If not, now is the time to come to him in repentance. For Jesus warns this man a bit further on in the story, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. His mercy towards us is a precious thing. Who would dare to squander it?
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, so much of our lives doesn't align with what we see and read of Jesus in the Gospels. Lord, our our prayers displays too often presumption and not faith. We pray, Lord, that you'll grow us in our faith. You will grow us in our hearing so that we might hear you, Father, when you speak, so that we may pray for people to see them healed, to see them brought to Christ. When we hear you acting and speaking, Lord. Lord, we pray that your salvation will never be taken for granted by us. We pray, Lord, that in all things we will be conformed more to the image of Christ day by day as we listen to you, as we trust you as we follow you we pray lord that we will hear your command whatever our state to rise and to walk and that we will respond with faith and enthusiasm lord we pray that you will teach us to pray teach us the words lord we need to pray when we're praying for people for healing and for salvation Lord, so that we're not babbling on and on like the pagans trying to convince you to listen to us Lord for we know Father you always hear us but Lord we don't always hear you we pray Lord for an open channel back from your voice your word to know when the time is right to pray for someone's healing Lord and when the time is right to just pass by as Jesus did at the pool of Bethesda pass by dozens hundreds whatever the crowd was there and healed only one we pray for that sensitivity and discernment Lord And we pray most of all, Lord, that the people will hear your voice. People who haven't yet heard you, Lord, will hear you say, rise, get up and walk. And they will put their trust in you, Lord, for their salvation, their eternal life, their permanent healing, Lord. And they will follow after you. We pray for our friends. We pray for our family. We pray for our work colleagues. We pray for people around the world, Lord, who have yet to hear the good news of Jesus Christ, of his rescue that he offers to all who would come to him and put their trust in him. All without distinction of language or nationality or ethnicity, of wealth or poverty, poverty, of education, or illiteracy. Lord, you say, get up, 
to everyone without distinction. Lord, we pray ears will be opened to hear your word, your call, to get up and follow after you. And we pray these things in your mighty and precious name, Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.